How's it going, guys? I'm Zeke. And I'm Jake. And you're listening to the Cinema Sideshow Podcast, episode 726. Correct. Ding, 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 ding. Ooh. Jesus. You did it. Sometimes right. I don't tell you ahead in advance just to see. Yeah. <laughs> if you get it. 76 weeks. Wow, that's crazy. That's the one. That's doing crazy. it. How are you, Zeke? I am... Yeah, I'm doing good now. I've had a good day. <laughs> <laughs> You've had a good I had a great day. week. I had a relatively good weekend, you know. Okay. Made some couple of changes in my life. It was pretty, pretty, pretty solid weekend. Nice. I like it, Gary. I like. Had a couple it. of revelations. Revelations. Yeah. If we want to get biblical about it. What about you, Jake? Yeah, I've had a had a good weekend. Just yeah. looking. Oh yeah, your computer's it faded out, but it didn't it didn't completely shut. No. So I'm glad no, for it's, that. It's, it's keeping together right now, but I'm <laughs> this whole watching show is it on sticky tape. <laughs> <laughs> Um, no, I've had a good weekend. I've, oh, a good week in general. Yeah. Another long one, but you're right. I'm, I just say that every week now, so. Yeah, but like, you know. get used to that. I we went out. To, we got a lot to, to look forward to on the yeah. show. You know, we're going to talk about some movies. Exactly. Got to be talking about our final film in our Countdown Through the Decades retrospective. Right, we're at the end. So that's pretty crazy. Ten episodes. And as of right now, we're pretty much in the clear phase-wise, restriction-wise. Yeah, we're just phase four. Did you... You had a... Would you call it a nightclub? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. it was a... There you go. You're a a nightclub night on the weekend. Yeah. My knees are still hurting. <laughs> but it was a lot of fun. Had a, good. Had a good night with some some uh, new and old friends. Aw, that's so, so sweet. That was, that was worthwhile. I've been playing Crash Bandicoot. <laughs> hey, look, I'm not going to criticise that. Good. Because... Don't. <laughs> <laughs> you know, uh, I'm glad you can still uh, commit to video games and platinum video games. So Yeah, no, I'm, I'm fitting it in and working. I'm doing it all, Zeke. I'm doing it all, very briefly. <laughs> Including watching movies this yeah, week. Yeah, I did that. Can you maybe <laughs> start us off with what you may or may not have watched? I hope every week from now you can get like more... like. <laughs> Like, what's the word? What's the one I'm looking for? Like, desperate with your segues? Yeah. <laughs> what's your, like, the most ridiculous segue? <laughs> well, I'm gonna... I feel like I feel like this show's become more personable over time. Yeah. Like, I used to leave my life out of it, and my life's salt or joy gradually <laughs> seeps in and out of the show. Yeah. So, normally before the show starts, we do, like, a pre-show segment, which we I basically just download my gossip onto you. <laughs> And I feel like it's slowly starting to bridge into the show. Yeah, I think we're starting too early now. We used yeah. to have like an hour gossip session before we turned the mics and on. and Maybe that's why. Now it's starting a little too early. So, <laughs> it, there's a, it almost feels like there's an inside conversation going on there. But oh, let's include the audience in what we did watch today. Oh, or audience. throughout the week. I'm just going to keep throwing you up. Nah, I'm <laughs> kidding. <laughs> well, I watched... Yep. Uh, he gave up. He just turned to himself. <laughs> <laughs> so, Jay, I'm going to stop asking you. <laughs> We're going to get this show on the road. <laughs> this is the most dysfunctional start to a show. Okay, Zeke, tell me, tell me what you watch. Okay. <laughs> All right, I watched I watched a musical documentary. 
Oh, I saw this. Uh, yeah, so the show yeah. must go on the Queen and Adam Lambert story, mm. uh, basically talking about the transition from Freddie Mercury to finding, well, Queen's new essential running buddy, uh, Adam Lambert. Mm-hmm. And um, I felt seldom good on it. You know, it was... Uh, I'm not a big fan of Queen, controversially. Oh, okay. Um, personally, uh, in a post-Freddie Mercury world... I th- I had very huge problems with the Bohemian Rhapsody movie, um, and I don't have very well, very high opinions of the remaining band members because I feel like Queen was Freddie Mercury, and that's the opinion of a lot of you know musical people mm. as well as just general. So to clarify, listeners. you're just talking about post Freddie Mercury Queen. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So you like the you like all the original stuff. Yeah, 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 of course. I'm like I've never been like a like a devout follower of them, and right. I think because we were born into a world where Freddie Mercury wasn't even alive, mm. uh, I sort of just never really got into them. Like, obviously, I like all the greatest hits. I think their greatest hits one and two albums are just like really show that they Maybe did have a lot of bangers. Like yeah, like yeah. there are, and there are moments where it's like I really do enjoy hearing a Queen song. I, think i could go the rest of my life and never hear bohemian rhapsody again and i'd be fine but that's fine <laughs> um and yeah i obviously um i don't know if we saw bohemian rhapsody when the show was running had we seen Bo- it was what do you did mean? we watch bohemian rhapsody when this show existed no 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 um, just before it would have been yeah, yeah it, been... it did it, it came out 2018 did so, it? yeah yeah so it did no, wow okay. so late that would have been november 2018 um, i saw it in the like late december i saw it really late Okay, so yeah, the so show it was like a had month just we started the show. yeah, yeah, the show had just kicked off uh, just shortly after. We might that, have so. talked about it on episode one. Now that I think about it, potentially. Um, and well, for the record, I I'm do not like that movie at all, hmm. and I don't think you really care for that movie. All yeah, that much. It, did, it didn't hold up on rewatches for sure. Um, and um, I think that was the definition of what you would call an Oscar bait film. Um, Best Dota team And Yeah Okay And I honestly think For the longest time um, They basically highlight Like How Queen went on After Freddie Mercury died Mm. And In particular Brian May And I can't even remember The uh, uh, Oh Roger Taylor Who's the drummer And the the guitarist Respectfully um, How they went on To sort of Kind of Cope with Playing Queen songs After that And for the most part, they kind of avoided it and they did it through avenues like musicals and stuff. And only recently through Adam Lambert have they found this sort of queen resurgence. But I couldn't help but, um, I don't know, feel a little bit like they've forever just kind of used the queen name to make money. And that's fine because in a capitalistic society, that's what you got to do. <laughs> um, I think it's fair enough. They still, I mean, it's not like false advertisement since that they do advertise as queen with... Adam Lambert, and it yeah, is seventy five percent of the but band. But like still. most people that liked them, or even people just generally, the band died with with Freddie Mercury, right. and the bass player left after Freddie Mercury died. He didn't. Uh, okay, yeah. So you've lost actually half the band technically, and you're left with a guitarist and a drummer who, you know, he's a talented guitarist and he's a talented drummer. But there are plenty of talented guitarists and plenty of talented drummers out there. And I, I would just, I, and I do, I actually enjoyed, I was really cold on the start of the documentary when they focused more on that. 
mm. and really started to warm to the documentary itself when they started to focus on Adam Lambert's story and sort of where he came from because I didn't know much about him. I didn't even realize he was an American Idol contestant. Yeah, uh, yeah. And I really liked that side of the story and focusing on his sort of, you know, like how he's actually used this Queen platform to just further popularize his own image, but still mm. make his own music. So yep. it feels like he has his own identity. He's not just a replacement for Eddie Mercury. He's just using this as a platform to push his own product too. Yeah, because there's someone... And again, I'm not really a huge muso per se. I love music, of course, but I'm not... I wouldn't compare myself to like the way I talk about film, where I feel like I have a deep film knowledge. Yeah, of course. Um, but that being said, I never... Even though I know Adam Lambert does... He fills in the shoes of Freddie Mercury in a way, and I know a lot of people, especially when they come yeah. towards here in Perth, people get really excited. But I never saw he's, him as Freddie Mercury. No. So... Um, and you don't I feel like to. he's done a good job at keeping his own image as well. Yeah, and honestly, he's got... It, like just as an incredible a different voice but just mm. as incredible a voice yeah. like it's a different tone slightly but it doesn't have to we're not looking for the same thing mm. and it's incredible like sometimes like he they showed one of his performances from american idol and i just was blown away by it and right. I, everyone and the reaction was pretty much like wow this guy's got it but this guy's got the moves um, oh, it's the same problem i have with bohemian rhapsody the fact that the those two that you know brian may and roger taylor both had equal EP credits and also push to have their characters have just as much screen time. So there's definitely a... Well, I think it's more warranted in this documentary because it is documentary about their transition. Sense. But I'm talking about Bohemian Rhapsody, the the film. film where, oh, yeah, yeah. And that was a big problem I had with the film because it felt like they did push way too much of of their screen time, I think, mm. the, the other band members. and I mean, that, they weren't nearly as... Uh, you know, they're just not... They're not queen, but that's me. <laughs> and I think I, I share the mindset of quite a few people. So, oh, okay. That's fair enough. Um, but the documentary overall was, you know, pretty interesting experience because it's it sort of, especially the Adam Lambert focal point. I thought that if you like, if you want to learn more about Adam Lambert rather than then the two the members that have queen. been talking heads for 30 years, then yeah, go into it and really enjoy it. Um, fair call fair call what about you Jake well I I thought this was appropriate because this is this is something that's been you know you call it our blacklist it's been on that for a very long time and I finally jumped the gun this week because I thought it would very much appropriately fit into our wider discussion of course the film of the week this week is a is a, a very popular fantasy film based on a novel that you had never seen before and I figured I would tick off that box as well on my end. So I watched for the first time ever the, the theatrical editions of the Lord of the Rings trilogy. Never seen it before. So I fixed that. And would you like a serving of second breakfast? <laughs> oh, baby, I would. Is that metaphorical for the, the extended cuts? Yes. <laughs> um, I'll, yes, I, I had a lot of fun with these films. They are just as sort of wonderful as you would expect them to be, I suppose. I think what I loved so much, and, and I, I want to talk about The Hobbit, because I have seen The Hobbit trilogy leading into this, which and is so strange. Can I just anyway. say, mm. now you've seen both. Right. Can you understand the frustration that comes with The Hobbit trilogy? Well, I, I think back to scenes when, um I forget his name, but the, the blonde archer dude is like bouncing around on yeah. barrels like a pixie fairy. Like yeah. I understand, like you compare that to when he's sliding down the stairs in the original trilogy, and you're mm. like, 
Yeah, no, this feels better. <laughs> so he's doesn't, jumping doesn't, around. Or... Yeah, doesn't feel like he's a rubber man. Yeah, exactly. But um, I, I actually... think I think to his Matrix run when the bridge is falling apart and he's like hopping up on the falling s- oh, stones yeah, yeah, in the yeah. third that one. That was it too. Like, what is? Admittedly, the the first time they really start to be like, okay, that's a bit crazy. Is the the mama kill scene in the third one? Well, I, I actually still really like the first two Hobbits. The third one's the only one I didn't really like just because it was a lot of noise. Mm. And uh, I think it's the Lord of the Rings... great way of describing it. A lot of noise. Yeah, well, I think I think the Lord of the Rings bypasses this because a lot of the action feels more motivated in the story and it's much better paced with the um, Frodo and Sam journey stuff, which that was real stuff. I was like, I love all of this stuff. And I appreciate all the... It's pretty much the mise-en-scene of the film and the direction. I thought... Peter Jackson's direction's like incredible in these films. And it's like yeah. I totally get how he like nailed this adaption from the novels. But when it was this when it was the wider stakes of the war and everything that was going on, I was a little less interested than I was in the Sam Frodo and, and um Gollum Gone. stuff with Andy Circus, who's incredible. And even just the way they shot his split personality disorder was like incredible. Just the the way yeah, they shot been, that coverage. Been homaged a lot since then. Right, yeah. yeah. Oh, it's brilliant the way he does it. Um, especially in the second film, The Two Towers. Which is your favourite? Probably the first one. Okay. Because that, that sort of interweaves all the stuff with Frodo and the main journey of destroying the ring with the sort of the wider implications. It's more tightly weaved in together. So when I got to the, especially the two towers, which might be my least favourite, I think they're all great films. And this is one of the only trilogies I ever saw where it's like, you have to watch them all back to back to back. This is all one film. I would, I mean, I don't think I'd ever watch all three of them in like one sitting. Right. But, but as the story, you. like you're never not motivated to watch the next one. You never feel yeah, obli- exactly. like it's never an obligation. You're like, you don't get to the end of two towers and you're like, Oh man, I have to watch the third one now. <laughs> like, no, you want to watch the third. one. <laughs> no, it's exactly right. It, it feels, it feels like a nine act film in a lot of ways. There's, I- there's some, I, and I know, I know, I find it interesting. You've watched the theatrical cut first and I actually am kind of happy you did. Because if you ever go back and revisit the extended, you'll really see some scenes that absolutely should have been in the theatrical, and then probably okay. some scenes that you probably could swip and swip and swap. Well, my question to you, I was going to pose this question to you: Is there more Frodo and Sam stuff in the Two Towers extended cut? Like, is there just more of them in general? Yeah, yeah, I, yeah. yeah okay, because it it felt like it was hollowed down to its most essential scenes. The biggest in that the, second uh, yeah, film, actually. Now that I'm thinking about it. It's so some of the things they they actually took out. I don't understand why they they give Faramir way more dimension as a okay. character, which sort of motivates his actions a little bit more hmm. because he kind of goes from being a complete douche in the theatrical version to a, a even just in the second the confines of the second film, right. he goes from um like abducting these hobbits and going oh the ring's gonna go to Gondor to kind of snapping just because. Frodo almost gets eaten by a Nazgul, which is little feels, but there's definitely like they really, what they do is now, Oh, you've also seen the third one. So they, th- <laughs> they, they actually have a scene with Sean Bean in the second one, right. a flashback scene to like showing the, uh, the, uh, the dynamic between Denethor, Boromir and Faramir. Okay. And sort of why Faramir gets the, you're the unwanted son treatment. The- <laughs> and it really does show, a humanized a way more and it actually fleshes out Boromir a little bit more too which he did actually have enough fleshing out he, mm. he became he went he was likable at points definitely in fellowship um but it just helps I think a little bit more um and I don't understand why they cut that out of two towers because okay, I would have cut out 
Uh, honestly, I probably would have cut out the love triangle stuff with Aragorn and Eowyn. That's yeah, just... I would admit that was probably the weakest point where I was like, I don't really care for this. In hindsight... There was I... a similarly dumb love triangle thing in The Hobbit, wasn't it? In the last film. Yeah, but that one was, that one was not even remotely in the novel. Whereas okay, yeah. the dynamic between Arwen, Eowyn and Aragorn is present in the, the novel. Yeah, yeah. So it, like, I see its relevance of the story, but I was just like, eh, I'm a little... Just in the way it was executed, I was like, eh, I didn't really care so much for yeah, this. Yeah, it, it's... Uh, like, honestly, I would have cut that out because right. her what she becomes in the third one makes the second one all the more frustrating, I think, to watch her, like, be all gushy and then she's the one who kills the Witch King in the end. So it's sort of like... Yeah. I actually, I, I, when that happened, I just thought, if this was released in 2020, there'd be so many angry nerds being like... Feminism. Yeah, but it it's wasn't so silly that she says I'm a girl and kill them. It's like chill out. <laughs> just I, I think to an extent it would have felt fake nowadays. Whereas back then, there was no like at the like she like her and Pippin, uh, her and her Mary need each other just as much, and it's right, sort of yeah. like they're both ostracized for being not men really because they're always called halflings. I mean, they're called yeah, yeah, yeah. They're half a man they're not even like so i i don't know i feel like that was a perfect example of feminism and cinema done right it's a yeah, little bit yeah, more yeah. subtle i mean it's literally taking the literal no man can kill me i'd love it it's still one of it's literally one of my favorite lines in the movie yeah i know i mean on. it works in relation because like you're right the the lingo in the lord of the rings is so like you know you're a real man sort of and it's not even a gender thing it's just like a man means a warrior so it's yeah. like it's used in that way where it's it's not so forced, but yeah. it wouldn't even matter in today's culture. People still be very upset. Yeah, it's funny. <laughs> I, I mean, I always, I always feel like, because they, they never, Lord of the Rings, the originals especially, they never over-sexualized their female characters. And I always really no. liked that. I mean, you've got your elves and stuff in well, sort of these gowns, but it's like that, that's part they're of both their too, female yeah. and female. Yeah, exactly. In, in gowns. They're um, sort of more... Uh, the, the gender's not use? as important. Well, yeah, they're just like a cleaner look, like a sleeker yeah. look. They're not like all but dirty. But if you look at Arwen, I mean, what she does in the first one, and then mm. you look at what Eowyn does in, in the third one, it's sort of like they. He, I think Tolkien wrote relatively like he won. He wrote quite progressive female characters mm. for the time, and I think, and they they talk about it in the extended cut special edition and stuff like that. Like, okay, um, like in the behind the scenes, they're like he wrote stronger female characters because he had a real strong connection to his wife mm. so it's sort of like you know i, I get that I, I respect that but he like <laughs> i respect that the real the real interesting thing with those books is how he actually wrote the languages first and then the story around the languages okay because he was a doctor in like ancient linguistics Right, so, so he, he made, created so these languages. The language, well, I thought I couldn't tell if it was like Star Trek, whether they made the language. That's a real thing, or this one. Yeah, these are f- like the whole the whole Elvish. That's complete. That okay. has a full dictionary. Okay, that's pretty cool. That he wrote. I like that. Well, that's what I like as well as the fact that there's so much wider lore that you can get into. Yeah, and it's, like as someone who's just sort of stepping into this world pretty casually, I was like, okay, well, I'm going to focus on like the plot that's but perceived it, uh, the, to me. The most amazing but, part now, and and this is full credit to Peter Jackson and the group is is just the legacy those films have mm. and that they offer a similar platform to what Star Wars does. You don't have to dive into all the books 
to be like, oh, well, like, I know all the extra stuff because there's enough... It's kind of like the Harry Potter films. And although I'm not the biggest fan of the Harry Potter films... Yeah, I certain... think Harry Potter, like, you... there's... It's very little what's, like, in the film versus what's in the book. Like, there's little, like, additional lore that you could... I mean, there's, there's plenty of lore to get yeah. into, but in terms of, like, what helps the story, it's like, it's all pretty there in Harry Potter. I think Potter, it's so, in like... the same with Lord of the Rings. I think if you watch... If you want to take a deeper dive without reading anything, just watch the extended cuts, you know? Right. Watch for all six films. Um, I'm sure I'll get to them one day, but um, I thought they were really well-paced. Like, you know, it's nine hours all in all. I was like, I was never bored, like, properly. No. Nah, yeah. I was never like, oh, this is too long. Like, it all it all pretty much flew past. Yeah. It's, it was way it's... breezier than the Godfather trilogy. Like, I, I find that's it, a slow one. Yeah, I find, it, I find it interesting, the order you picked, I think. But, I, like, I also... I'm well, I mean, I'm watching it the way not... that everyone would have watched it initially. But I'm also, well, I'm, I'm also not surprised because Fellowship is the most traditional of the three films in the sense that, oh, it that could is my stand, favorite. It could stand alone. Yeah, yeah. Right. so I understand why it's your favorite, and I can understand. I've well, always found Two Towers necessarily... being my favorite, right? Which is, um, actually probably most conceived as everyone's least favorite, which I've always found funny. I think I like. I, I just, it's probably my least favorite. The too. ending, oh, the ending with the ants is just so worth it. It's just like every time. And just, I think Sam's monologue is really, is one of those like stronger parts where right. he talks about like how people will remember them doing this stuff. And I mean, that's a nice little moment. Well, that that's the thing as well. I was watching this, not only from like a mise-en-scene thing where I was like the production design and the, the costume and just everything that's happening on screen is like mm. so amazing. Even just the amount of work, you know, people talk about, oh, Avengers Endgame was very uh, hard to put together. I'm like, I'm sure it was. It looks impressive but this is looks way more impressive in terms of like the stuff that's going on on screen and the amount of times they're cutting from this to that to this that is so impressive but the thing i I was really curious about was the structure of the story because it's like unlike something like back to the future the godfather these are films where they made one and then they decided to continue the story afterwards so those really do have self-contained films i don't think the fellowship of the rings is self-contained at all especially with the ending it's a very cliffhanger ending and I was so curious mm. to watch a film where it's like from from the first minute, this is like they know they're going to do three films, so it was interesting to see how they, well, they act three act structures within a nine act yeah film, and, and I, I feel that like interesting. that's um that's a problem the Hobbit definitely did have because the ending for the Hobbit had to be cut and changed because they went from two films to three films yeah, so the ending is um there's a lot of issues with the hobbit because and it was production issues that never happened with lord of the rings whereas they tried with the original lord of the rings they tried to push for two films and um is it miramax miramax wanted one film they wanted one two-hour yeah. film for the whole and, trilogy and then new line were like you're not making two you're making three because yeah. there's three books and so that allowed them to pace the story more accurate to yeah. the books whereas the hobbit is a a book a third the size of one of the Lord of the Rings books and right, split tiny. into three films. So there's a lot of padding in there that just never existed in um, in the original Hobbit yeah. no- novella lore. And that's fine because, to be fair, some of the uh, extra stuff they put in there to pad the runtime, it actually helps. They give Smaug, like like they give Benedict Cumberbatch that. Yeah, that, that whole sequence is incredible with Smaug. Yeah, and... and that and I honestly I finished the second film really enjoying it, but there are bits in it that make the third film is just sluggish and it's a mess and it and because uh, I essentially the book's told from Bilbo's perspective and he gets knocked out at the start of that fight, so he misses pretty much the whole right, fight. Okay, and he misses most of it in um in the movies, but 
I don't know. There's just not nearly as much to work with, and I feel like that would have benefited from only being two films. And I mean, I think The Hobbit probably could have been one film as well. Could have. I feel like two. I could have got. I I could have got five, six hours out of it rather than nine and a half, Mm. which it ended up being. Because Jesus, when you think about some of the things, and they they make no sense, and they just he just does them because he's like I need to create a conflict here that didn't exist yeah. I do I do like the symmetry between the Lord of the Rings and, and the Hobbit and you're right it shouldn't have been three films but it is nice that you sort of have these two trilogies that stand side by side and and the tone is really like I was I was shocked at how similar the tones are between the two in terms of like the fun adventure and Lord of the Rings takes itself a little bit more seriously which oh, yeah. I'm glad it does but in terms of like the way you follow Frodo and be like, oh, I'm I'm excited to go on this adventure with him. I just felt the same way um, with Bill. Did I say Frodo, Bill? But yeah, both, but between both, I of feel them, like maybe. just having just having for symmetry's sake, having three films just just because then you have two trilogies. It's not. I mean, even like Benicio del Toro was meant to be the the original director for the Hobbit movies. He only wanted two. Yeah. So, um, and I think they would have been two if you would just you just cut the fat out and you focus on mm. the story i don't i do think you could get two films out of it and it being it would become quite uh, a good pair and you know it just would have been better than trying to really the essentially the only reason they had a trilogy was to try and make as much money as they could yeah by doing three outings instead of two and that's a shame that i feel like with lord of the rings much like a lot of problems that trilogies have when they, they go back to the world too many times, Lord of the Rings just wanted to make three really good films and pick up probably a couple. It was probably way more an Oscar push, whereas Hobbit was definitely pushed more by its financial gain rather than... Return of the Ring won, bleh, Ring won Best Picture, didn't it? Yeah. That's right. insane. And they all got nominated, I'm pretty sure, at different okay, yeah. times uh, for different things. So I think Fellowship got nominated quite a bit too. Yeah, And it's like... So it, it definitely felt like... They were using the films as blockbuster films, sure, but they were more marketed for awards, whereas The Hobbit, they knew they were never going to win any awards because the source material is just not as uh, meaty. Mm-hmm. Um, so they just were like, okay, well, let's try and stretch this piece of bread out as much as possible and make this as much money. piece of bread. Got a flat bread. You, I would find it very interesting if anyone could actually uh, counterpoint that because there's a lot of behind-the-scenes stuff that proves that point. Now, in hindsight, with The Hobbit, there were a bunch of acting strikes because people weren't getting paid and and delays in production and then last-minute changes to the fact they went from two films to three. So actors didn't even know when they were acting what film they were in. And that difference Mm. That happens in Marvel too, though. Like, a lot of the actors, they don't know which film they're doing half the time. Yeah, but I feel like... Do you feel like sometimes... But I feel like in Marvel they did that because... They don't want... It's for secrecy, though. It's for secrecy. That, they, they, they have a plan. I have a plan. Sorry, like, a little, a little and that's been proven there, by yeah. how successful <laughs> the Endgame stuff was. I mean, there are filler movies in the, the MCU, but they all, at one point or another, even some of the, the worst films critically rated, like Thor 2, played a part in Endgame. Yeah, I feel like that was sort of intentional. Like, oh, we got that four two, that outlier. We gotta, we gotta make it matter more than people are gonna guess it does. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, even if it was intentional, though, it still worked. It worked yeah, in yeah. the context of, of Thor's storyline. So, but um, speaking was of going plan. to the world too many times, that's what they're gonna do in a moment. Marvel, uh, really? Well, the, pff, they should just stop. 
Yeah, they should have. But suck. um, but yeah, that was that was it. I've I finally ticked that off my my box. I'm really proud of you. Thank you. Did you cry at the end? No. I mean, here's really, the problem. Because I got really upset. Because I watched them all so close together, um, it's not going to take long for me to start melting scenes. Like, I literally already had this thought today. I was like, was that scene in the second one or the third one? That's going to fuck me up. So, yeah. eventually no, I'll rewatch them and I'll watch the extended cuts. And But um, I was really, really happy. I almost gave them all a zero or one, a half star on Letterboxd because uh, Sam, of course, calls him Mr. Frodo. That's not his name. He's Mr. Baggins. That's incorrect. So, so that's sh- why you would give it half. Star. I was going to give them all a half star. Is that, was, was, was there a review that actually did that? I'm sure they fucking is. <laughs> <laughs> so um, another yeah. movie that I watched this week yes. was Enemy at the Gates, which is um, a film by Jean Jacques Anud. I have no clue. I'm like looking at his uh, filmography, and I don't think I've seen another film from him. Oh, I've seen The Bear. Okay, The but- Bear. So I assume he's a French filmmaker by that name. Um, yeah. So basically stars Jude Law and um, Ed Harris. And it's about uh, the uh, German invasion of Stalingrad mm. and the uh, following this one sniper as he slowly becomes famous through the publication of prop- uh, communist propaganda. Isn't this the film that they played in Inglorious Bastards in the theatre? This is Sniper racking up counts. Oh right, yeah. I don't <laughs> so know what it is. <laughs> well, that's it because well, he's a Soviet sniper, so no, oh, okay, um, completely different. But I get what you I, <laughs> you had me confused for a second. Okay, good. <laughs> um, I felt uh, this is kind of funny because this film came out in two thousand one. Yeah. Um, and all the Russians have English accents. Oh God. And I just think to myself, <laughs> um, this is probably a product of the time. Uh, what year did it come out? Two thousand one. Oh, okay. So I don't really know. Like I, Same I'm okay with Fellowship of the Rings. I'm okay for British people to play Russians, mm. but why aren't they using Russian accent? This is the invade. This is the start. Like, because maybe I, I feel like it might have had something to do with. I, I don't want to say it's to do with the fact that maybe there might have been some anti-Russian sentiment back then or something like right. that. But it's made by a French filmmaker, so I'm really confused why. He hasn't gone the... Because the Germans have German accents. Ed Harris has a German accent, <laughs> which is what made it even more confusing. Yeah. And the film was shot well enough and had some really tense, cool moments. But I couldn't give it more than, I think, two and a half or three stars because I was just like, I'm really confused. To me, that that's, a, that's an example of, I guess, Western cinema. I don't want to say whitewashing because that's an incorrect term. Right. But you know what I mean? But just not not abiding to the authenticity of the world they're building for you. It's like I watched a film a few <laughs> years back called Defiance with yep. Daniel Craig and Lee Schreiber, who are American and British respective. Daniel Craig's British, yeah, yeah. Um, and then English. Lee Schreiber is, I'm pretty <laughs> sure, American. Um, and they both play Russians, and they both have Russian accents. Mm. And I'm like, this is fine. It's just a Western interpretation of. A Russian Revolution. It's fine. You're allowed to use. That's what acting is. But if those two had been using English or American accents, how much believe they're Russian? We're in Russia. <laughs> Do you not think that's confusing? That is strange. Like that feels if it's like... that distracting, that's a problem. Yeah, it really, really killed the film for me because I didn't mind the concept, the power of like the media, 
mm. that calls Ed Harris, who's obviously a German bad guy because it's Ed Harris. Um, <laughs> I feel bad for him. He poor, always gets. Do Harris. you do you feel bad for him? He always gets put in those antagonist positions. Yeah, I'm sure there's a there's a play at this. He's always at the front of the train. I'm sure, he makes next it's extra money by doing that. Reference. Oh, look at that. <laughs> I'm sure that's just a metaphor. Anyway, well, I'm sure got... they made Snowpiercer. For that metaphor. <laughs> when 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 Chris Evans got to the front of that train, I was just like, of course it's Ed Harris. Of course Ed Harris is the bad guy. <laughs> oh, no, no That's surprise. Like in yeah. that like action movie with Liam Neeson and him, I was like, of course Ed Harris is going to be the bad guy. <laughs> is Ed Harris in the Snowpiercer American series? I don't know. I haven't watched it. probably it. is. <laughs> so I, I really was disappointed because it's just like... Completely takes me out of the moment. Can yep. Jude Law just not do an accent? Is that the thing? Like, <laughs> you would think he could though. I don't know. I have one more film Ooh, to talk about. Cheeky. Other than the film of the week, do you have any? Uh, I'm good for now. What, what's your film? Okay, so last year I talked about Tom Hanks and M. Watson's The Circle. And, oh yeah, yeah, uh, I've seen The Circle. We 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 talked about it. I didn't like it at all, and you didn't mind it. I thought it was okay. Uh, yeah, yeah. I'm not saying you thought it was good, but yeah, you yeah, yeah. definitely were not as critical as I was on it. Right. Um, unfortunately, I watched another film called Circle, not The Circle. Big difference. <laughs> the difference between The Room and Room. Now, <laughs> I actually... Oh, beg my pardon. No, don't break I, anything. Um, so this film is a, clearly a very indie film, and I'm going to set the premise for you. Set yeah, it for okay. me, Zeke. Do it. Um, okay. In a massive mystery chamber, 50 strangers awaken to find themselves trapped with no memory of how they got there. Organized in an inward-facing circle and unable to move, they quickly learn that every two minutes, one of them must die, executed by a strange device. Every two minutes? This is like Saw times 50. Or Saw times 25. (laughs) Yeah. Um, Um, So, starts... So, basically, it's all shot in a... what. It's probably a soundstage, I'm right. going to guess. Yeah, they would have built that for sure. Um, oh, no, there's, like... If I just show you the, the photo, if you have a look, just Let's there. See the photo. Oh, okay, I see. So it's it's very much black room, dots on the floor. They and could have made this, that. There's this how-looking bulb, how 9000-looking bulb <laughs> in the middle. And it shoots out <laughs> a bolt of lightning that, like, zaps them. It doesn't do it... Like, it does it in, like, a way that it's, like doesn't look it doesn't like the, the the effects aren't bad or anything until the right. the end but i'll get there so <laughs> honestly i was like i was doing my zeke minds for a good movie on netflix yeah. so um and as we know i probably have less success than i do uh, i have less like i have less good ones over bad ones right um but occasionally i'm surprised and i was intrigued by the concept and I could clearly see from the start this film is probably on a micro budget, and I'd be very surprised if it exceeded more than ten thousand hmm. dollars. So I'm kind of already on board with it simply because I'm like, hey, I'm I'm one for the ten thousand dollar feature films. Yeah. I like the idea. Is this on Netflix? Yeah. Okay. Okay. Yeah. So I I would encourage you to watch it until. <laughs> so no, actually, you know what? Watch it. Give it a go. Help out. The people that clearly made no money on this film. So wait, uh, did you like this one or not? I can't even <laughs> can't um, tell yet. No, I didn't like it. Okay. Um, the p- negatives far outweigh the positives. My positives are I'm always pro these really micro-budget films and I don't mind the concept of 
um, sort of trying to... Uh, so they're basically, like I said, it's 50 individuals sit in yeah. a circle. If you step off your dot, you get shot and you're dead. And then everyone votes. To, and it leads to... Basically, the premise is that there are these two... Uh, there's a pregnant lady and a little girl. And then there, it becomes very apparent very early on that the two that need to get to the end are those two. And most okay. good... And it basically... Unfortunately, Jake, a lot of the times, <laughs> who dies and who doesn't dies gets brought back to very one-note sort of things. Guys racist, police officer does police brutality. Yeah. They they conform to character, like character archetypes and stereotypes and often leaves you feeling kind of hollow. There are a few kind of nifty twists in there, like two people pretend they're they're married in order to stay around longer. Oh, that's clever. Um, I liked that twist, um, but essentially, yeah, um, the ending was really bad and it kept going, uh. like, really bad. Like, I was sitting, I was like, <laughs> I, like, I might give this a pass because it's given me enough out of it. And then the ending came and I was like, you're not passing. Um, but, yeah, I, I can't help but feel that the concept didn't warrant 80 minutes in hindsight. Right. There's a similar film. It's an Australian-made film. I think in, like, Melbourne called Observance. And I, just, I was just on my phone trying to find it. I now remember the name. That was very similar. It was, like, a $10,000 film with a really cool premise. But, it like, it just... You're right. It drops out of a hat. It's like... It, it feels like a four-hour film when it's only 80 minutes by the end of it. Yeah. It, it's sort of like... Because there are 50 people... Everyone's, That's a lot of people. <laughs> yeah, and obviously a couple of them die that are like, they don't even get lines. But... <laughs> Sorry. Yeah, that's great. It, I think, it, I mean, I was watching, I like, it didn't require a lot of brain power because a lot of the characters, like I said, they're very one note. Um, and it sort of comes back down to, I think they want it to be a reflection of the problems in society. And that's inherently what the 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 core problem they're trying yeah. to get across like you know you people's know what the prejudices problem... come out but yeah it's just feels it feels very much like i i was hooked on the fact that it felt like this did feel like a film student made this film right so you were just fascinated from that standpoint yeah i can tell you thematically that it's not good for society when you kidnap 50 people and then just murder them well it turns out aliens <laughs> abduct it's an alien invasion oh, so aliens are doing it to spoiler alert <laughs> but the problem is the antagonist shifts so many times. So there isn't a one guy who manages to manipulate his way to the finish line almost. Mm. It switches like every 10 to 15 minutes because one guy gets to the point where they're so clearly a bad guy, everyone else just gets them killed. That's pretty funny. <laughs> they all like team together to blow this guy up. <laughs> and it's like, it just, to me, it feels a little bit like, huh... That's a and there's some interesting ones like there's like I said the two that lie about saying they're married to get further the two that there's two on other ends of the room that are having an affair and then that comes oh, out like together yeah all right I want to see this one so this is called Circle yeah just Circle ah oh, yeah so the average on Letterbox is two point six which is not great and it gears towards yeah anywhere between half a star and three stars mostly so. yeah. I, yeah, I, I gave like it a it. two. I felt like I've watched far worse this year, and it. I can't 
criticize something too much that's tra- the ending is just unforgivably bad though there was there was a really good there was this weird thing and if you do watch it jake there's a twist but it's like the twist is i mean if you want me you're to really spoil selling it, me to watch this okay i can tell you that i could tell you if you want me to nah it's fine i want the viewers to make up their mind if they want to okay see this so do you want me to s- just spoil it no, I said we wait. We let okay. the viewers have a chance to, to catch it. So you... Watch. It's interesting. Yeah. It's definitely something different. The um, viewers or the listeners, I should say. For, you know, it's 80 minutes too, so it's not... But by, it's like, not too much of your time. There are some bits where you're just like, of course they went that route. Of course the police <laughs> officer beats people up for no reason. <laughs> and, and then the guy with all the tattoos mm. on his face is a domestic abuser. Like, uh, it's just like... Or the... The guy who's the soldier is is, I mean, admittedly they actually have a bit of complexity with the soldier character where he goes like, he but he flip flops. He goes from, oh man, uh, we just got to protect the kid and at kid, the kid and the wife, and then people go, well you'll die then. He goes, no, I'm not dying, and I'm just like, you just went from being honourable to not honourable. Yeah, that's probably the, I don't know if that's a point or not. If it's just inconsistent, man. it's very confusing. Oh well, it's um, interesting. Yeah, so I guess that's a half recommendation from from your boy Zeke. Approach with caution. <laughs> Put a red sticker on it. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Um, uh, that's yeah. all I got. Cool. Well, um, I figured I don't I don't know if either of us have any um career updates. Not for me. I I've been teasing it for a couple of weeks. There still hasn't been any like confirmation, so I'm just gonna say it. I'm just gonna. <laughs> Zeke, you're very mean to me. Nah. Um, all right. So when I worked on a couple of weeks ago, I've been teasing for the last couple, yeah, couple of weeks. And I was just like, oh, wait for it to come out. I don't think it's come out yet, but you can find a YouTube channel with some sort of supplementary stuff. I think they actually have the theme song to this available, or like a video you can go see. But uh, basically, I was at the Backlot Studios or Backlot Perth the other week, and I was recording some audio for a man you may have heard of, everyone, Pete Rosefawn. When I told you, Zeke, you were like, holy shit. Mm. <laughs> You're like, I know that person. So uh, I was doing some audio with him because there is a new, uh, I don't want to call it a TV show. There's an animated show being produced that I kind of just stumbled into accidentally and ended up recording some voices. But uh, so that, that is going to be called the uh, Pencils Heads Kids Club. So if you see that in the horizon anytime soon, you know, I, I was there doing the voices, man. I was there doing the voices. Congratulations, question mark. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, but no, thank you. That was, uh, that was a cool little thing. Like I said, I didn't really want to talk about it until it was out. Uh, if you want to learn more about it, you can go to Black Wax Entertainment on Facebook. There's also a Pencil Heads Kids Club YouTube channel. So there's some stuff in there. If you want to get ahead of that pilot episode they're developing. Um, but that was a couple of weeks ago now. I know they were aiming... Uh, I can't remember the date they said. They were like, oh, we had a date we're thinking of, and that's well past, mm-hmm. so they might be having some trouble getting the, the animation finished, but um, that's there. So that's really cool. And none other than Mr. Uh, Greg Page, the original Yellow Wiggle, is producing. So that's really cool. That's mm-hmm. fair enough. Very exciting. Well, uh, I'm sure if you're into kids' shows, you'll look forward to listening to that eventually. Yeah. No, I'm, I'm keen. I can't wait for it to come out and see how it all goes, and hopefully I'm brought on for more. Because I, I didn't know the extent. When I came on to do it, I didn't know the extent of what it was going to be, so I just brought some film gear and stuff. I didn't realize that I was recording the voices that would end up on the show. Mm-hmm. If I knew that, I would have brought these mics that we're using right now. <laughs> so maybe next time, 
Maybe next time I'll do that. I'm trying to check the uh, Circle's budget. Oh, really? It's only coming up with the 2017 film. Oh, The Circle. Yes. You might have to look up Circle and then the year after it. Yeah. That might be... Oh, no, I've got it, but it's just not got any information, unfortunately. Oh, that's not a surprise, though. What a shame. Well, it is time (laughs) to move in to our film of the week and our final instalment in the Cinema Sideshow Countdown Through the Decades Retrospective. I'm sad. 1930s time, but Jake, (laughs) what are we watching? This week on the show, we're watching The Wizard of Oz. What would you do with a brain if you had one? Do? Why, if I had a brain, I could... I could while away the hours, conferring with the flowers, consulting with the rain. And my head, I'd be scratching while my thoughts were busy hatching if I only had a brain. When a tornado rips through Kansas, Dorothy and a dog Toto are whisked away in a house to the magical land of Oz. They follow the yellow brick road toward the Emerald City to meet the wizard, and en route they meet a scarecrow that needs a brain, a tin man missing a heart, and a cowardly lion who wants courage. Mm, what that courage, Zeke. Yeah. Actually, I'm pretty sure the cowardly lion's Kansas counterpart is named Zeke. That's courage's name. What's that? The the cowardly lion, the Kansas version of him, is named Zeke. That's his character name. Ah. So there you go. Get Look at that. that courage, Zeke. Got that. Uh, got that name. Go for it. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, yeah, uh, Wizard of Oz, 1939, which of course. That's the same year The Gone with the Wind came out. You may notice that Victor Fleming directed both of those films. Of course, he co-directed Gone with the Wind. I think he came on late to help with that production and this uh, uncredited King Vider, V-I-D-O-R. Apparently, yes. he helped complete this film. Uh, but yeah, very, very classic film. I think a lot of people, strangely not including yourself, though, have watched this film growing up. Gone with the Wind up. or Wizard of Oz? Oh, The Wizard of Oz. Oh, okay. I think this is... Uh, just one of the. I mean, I said it last week, and I'll say it again for those who didn't listen last week that this was probably the first film I ever watched ever. And I probably played that VHS hundreds of times, so I knew this film pretty well. And rewatching it the other it, day, it more hmm? baffles me that how is that your first film you ever watched? Like, it's it's crazy, and it's a really good start in terms of uh, if you're for your eventual right. career. But I'll like... start my kids on Pulp Fiction next time. <laughs> Oh yeah, when they're when they're one years old. I guess it'd just be like there wasn't like a. It wouldn't be my go-to kids film. Okay. To... Well, it's interesting because the, I would say the reason it is probably the film that I watched so many times as a child is because it was the one that my mum was like, "I'm gonna show this to my kids when they're born." So I watched Charlie and the Chocolate Factory a lot. Oh, you mean Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory or Charlie and Chocolate Factory? There's two different ones. Which is the one that. Uh, Gene, Gene Wilde, yeah, that's Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory. That's the one I watched. Okay, that, oh. see, but that's equally, that's actually so comparable to this film. Yeah, yeah, so that's also so. kind of a weird, quote unquote, kids film. Yeah, I mean, I wouldn't yeah. say that was. It was probably a Pixar movie. I would have said Toy Story, probably the first film okay. I can remember watching or Finding Nemo, even. Oh wow, okay. um, you would have been like six, seven when that came out. Yeah, I mean, I've, I have a really shoddy memory though from okay. like early childhood. But, I um, would say the first time I went to a theater was 101 Dalmatians, potentially. Honestly, Thomas the Tank Engine and the Magical Railroad <laughs> might be the first film I remember yeah, watching. Yeah, boy. And yes, I would recommend it. Uh, but um, yeah, so of course this is based on the 1900 novel by L. Frank Baum. 
and uh, apparently he's written like literally dozens and dozens of sequels to this. I wanted to watch the 2013 Oz Great and Powerful. Oz Great and Powerful, yeah, with um, what's his bloody name? James Franco. James Franco. Uh, Mila Kunis. Yeah, yeah. Um, I it was a bit of a flop. Yeah, I, I decided not to watch it. <laughs> I was gonna win, and I didn't. Uh I didn't watch it in preparation for this. I have seen it. Wow, uh, so you saw that before The Wizard of Oz? Yeah, I saw it in the cinema. What the fuck? <laughs> Sometimes you just go to movies, man. Yeah, that's fair enough. I saw The Desolation of Smaug before I even finished the first Hobbit film. Yeah. Or any of the Lord of the Rings films. <laughs> fair enough. <laughs> yeah. But, but I mean, yeah. I didn't care for it. I under, like, I've, 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 over the years, never sat down to watch it, but mm. I've seen many uh, scenes from Wizard of Oz. Um, oh, of course, it's, yeah. It's nearly impossible to go through your whole life without seeing a single scene from... Whether uh, it's the music or just quotes in general, I'm guessing. Your music especially. Yeah. I mean, that's that's one of the biggest things. Even, uh, you know, watching, like, Judy earlier this year. Oh, you yeah. Get, you get little glimpses of it at the start of that. Yeah, just, like, the set design and stuff that she's yeah, in. Exactly, yeah, exactly, you know. So, um, it's funny. I feel like I've had all of the preparation. I've circled around it my whole life and never actually watched it. <laughs> So. Well, now that you have, as a 22-year-old man, what did you think of The Wizard of Oz? Like, I have to be 22 <laughs> in order to watch it. <laughs> well, like, no, for I, me, it's like I was like one when I first saw this film. I feel so. like a film like this, I'm never going to get the wonder or sense hmm. that a child will get because I'm not a child. Yeah. Just as I watched things like Lord of the Rings as a child... And you didn't. You've watched it now as an adult. So mm. there was a sense of wonder that came with watching things like Star Wars, Back to the Future, Lord of the Rings growing up. From, yeah, like on the young age. Oh, yeah. Like, I remember watching Back to the Future at like eight. Yeah. Which kind of, uh, ah, it's fine for an eight-year-old. Yeah, no, nah, that's fine. The, the plutonium stuff's going to go over your head, but... um. Yeah, and the, the weird kind of incest joke goes a bit over your head, I think, too. Oh, uh, yeah. I'm trying to remember what the specific... We don't, well, we, like, I don't need to Marty's mum. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah I thought it a... was like a singular joke. You no. were to. Okay, fair enough. Um, but yeah, no, I, I, I'm just more astounded at the technological feats of yes. the film. Yeah. Um, and I think the context of, uh, the production behind this film is both, uh, um, jaw dropping and and amazing and terrifying and horrifying. <laughs> so. <laughs> There's that sort of mix. Um, everything from how they found Judy Garland and how they got. Uh, I'm not even. I feel bad, but the Wicked Witch of the West. Oh, uh, Margaret Hamilton. Who wasn't the original choice for the role. Oh, she I'm wasn't. Sure. Yeah, so she came in. Um, they wanted another person, I'm pretty sure, to play her. And, I mean, you listen to things like her iconic laugh. And mm. I think. Although witches were a part of culture for, you know, thousands of years, the green-faced witch, like, sort of type, hadn't that wasn't a pop culture thing now. And I think the pop culture that came out of this film is, is crazy. Yeah. I mean, we talked about influence in Lord of the Rings. Like, this has a ridiculous influence yeah. on sort of everything that came after it. Um, not even just from the technological feat of the film, but just, like, so many of the quotes and the looks of the characters and... For sure, for sure. The emphasis on uh, physically making the characters, Mm. I think, uh, rather than digitally. And 
Um, I know they didn't have the option to do digitally at the time. <laughs> Thank God. <laughs> and they did actually in, in Oz, the great and powerful and co- comparing them to comparatively, I'm always going to pick Wait, Are those same. same characters in, well, like the lion and stuff. They're not in that. No, movie, no, no. Okay. It's more okay. centered around the Oz part. Yeah. Um, although there is some interesting visual effects that they do apply in this film too. Yeah, yeah. So I got a bit about the cinematography here, how they've done some of their, um, like the process of it, because I was watching this the other day, being like, wow, like, and we watched stuff like Citizen Kane and 12 Angry Men, which of course, those were black and white films by choice, like yes. aesthetically or perhaps um, Citizen Which is still, even, budget even, or whatever. even, yeah, budget is the big yeah. one. Because, Although this is the this is the first Technicolor film, if I'm correct. Uh, I don't think it's the first one, but it's one of the first for sure. I think there's yeah. one in 1917 that was the in color. The cost is just yeah, absurd. Well, so. it was to do... They shot it... I think it was like a free plane. Where's my... No, I'm looking at fucking... Sorry. I wrote... For this film in particular, I wrote a lot of notes. Uh, so it was a free strip Technicolor, uh, either film reel or yeah. the camera itself. And that led to obviously a, a sh- you were talking about lights in Twelve Angry Men. This one was a kicker for mm-hmm. lights and how hot that set was at the time. But what's cool was that they juxtaposed it with uh, the Kansas footage, which I always assumed was black and white. It's actually not black and white. Sepia. Yeah, exactly. It's sepia. So it's a sort of that brownish mm-hmm. tone, if you will. And I was so pleasantly happy because I wasn't sure the shot when she enters into Oz that the door is still sort of that brownish tone and mm-hmm. the inside frame of the door is in colour. So I was like, I'm yeah. glad it's not just a cut. Like, we're literally, like, following her into the colourful world. And that, for the time, like, just that, so such an important transition in colour. And even today, it still works. Yeah. It works so well. To, is there any documentaries? Yeah. Oh, this? I'm sure there's, like, tons, yeah. Man. I'm sure I've seen some of it. I've seen some of the behind-the-scenes footage. And... Yeah, because I'm aware of the working conditions weren't red hot. In terms of, uh, unless it was the lights. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Well, I have a story about um Hamilton that I'll, I'll tell you about in a second. I am curious. <laughs> but, um, yeah, so I know it's it's hard to get all that behind-the-scenes context out of your head because so, all the stuff with Judy Garland, uh, all the stuff that happened to the rest of the cast and especially at the Munchkins. There's so many stories about the Munchkins and uh, even a theory about one killing themselves on set, which we'll get into as well. Seen so much, yeah. but in terms of just like I guess the story or the characters, the songs especially, like, did you I, find I this really heartwarming or creepy? Um, no, I, I can't. I find it in the same. I've caught comparing it to the Willy Wonka film is I think very comparable. Yeah, very. Com- yeah, exactly. Um, because some people find that film quite creepy too, mm. and. I do still find the Oompa Loompas creepy. Um, so, Fuck, they're so similar. They really are so similar, yeah. those films, yeah. Um, and even, like, sort of the manic style. Like, like although you, you like the Tin Man, the Lion, and the, and the Scarecrow, mm. they're not necessarily stable characters. <laughs> um, Dorothy not... is very much playing the straight woman in yeah. this sort of thing. Like, the straight man character, and is surrounded by all this, this all chaos. All yeah. Um, uh, Fish out of water, clear as day. Yeah, even from the color of being literally like in a blue and white uniform. Yeah, um, yeah. You know, it's very um, I, it's very hard to kind of take things out of my head, like things like Willy Wonka or Alice in Wonderland is mm. the other, obviously the other thing that comes straight to my head. Yeah. Um, I do like the movie. I think it's really trying to show you the value of like 
home and sort of mm. the home is where the heart is sort of there's in no it. place like home yeah well uh, not even like just home is where the heart is where it's like mm. you know you go on these you know it's it, it, it's essentially it is a sort of a coming of age film and it's in it's you know very sad it's, it's rawest uh, I guess. form i guess yeah yeah it's you know it's a journey film you know mm. she starts in one place and you know she starts longing to get out of kansas and then she finds herself out of water and then wants to go home. Mm. So, you know, very simple. I think at the end of the day, this film is, is not remembered for its story. Um, it's just not. It's re- in, Yeah, in comparison to the other elements, for sure. Like, we talk about, the last two weeks we talked about 12 Angry Men and Citizen Kane, and you can sit down and go point for point analysis on those things mm. because those stories... Uh, are trans they transcend time whereas the experience of this film is what transcends time i think like uh everything from how, how the production's constructed how mm. how it it's and i really kind of wish i had given gone with the window a shot because it's sort of the like before this because um i feel like that's a similar sort of film and it's feels like it's scope even though it's even it's grand yeah. reality, it's sort of like these films they feel big. I think the scope in Gone with the Wind comes from just like the length and the the width of the story. The story takes place over decades. And, yeah. Uh, with this, it's like it's very contained in that way. But all the elements within, like the production design, the vibrant colors, like that's what sticks out for this film. Yeah, and I think that's why maybe Willy Wonka was the first thing that came to my head. Mm-hmm. Um, even just them walking into the main part of the chocolate factory is like exactly. And like you go into in another world and yeah. how absurd that goes and i would i would be very i wouldn't be surprised if i ever saw an interview with the filmmakers of i don't even know who made willy wonka but i would be very i would would absolutely think they would have cited wizard of oz as an influence right at least visually for sure yeah Yeah. even influencing even the literary writings of roald dahl to a to an extent I mean, that's the thing. It goes back. I just got rid of the author's name. I'm new, but um, Balm was his yes. surname. But like, he is such an early influencer in the way he would write stuff. And I'm not a big like literary guy on him specifically, mm-hmm. but just you could tell his writings were so inspirational. And Roald yeah. Dahl, of course, came way after. I think he came way after. Maybe he was born in the 18th, 1800s. I don't know. <laughs> I don't know these things anymore. But yeah, I think I think in terms of influences, this film has given out plenty to other authors and other filmmakers, art directors, and all of that. And what's shocking is that if you look at the, the film in its own time, in terms of Oscars, it only won two. It only won for the music categories. For it's got some good music though. It's got some great music, but uh, it didn't win for productions. I don't think, and it definitely didn't win Best Picture to Gone with the Wind. So Roald Dahl was born in nineteen sixteen. Oh, perfect. So perfect. He would have been 23 when this came out. So I would say this definitely influenced his yeah, writing. for sure. For sure. Well, even the book. I think he was... I think the book was 16 years old when he was born. So that's like perfect timing. Yeah. For both the, the novel and the film. Yeah. So, um, yeah, no, I, I... I. So what was the other thing it was nominated for? Was it set design? No, I think the only two it won was best original music and best score. But it was nominated best... for other stuff. I think it was, yeah, nominated for tons, I think. Okay. You know what? I wish I had it. I'm bringing it up. I'm bringing it up. But I so mean, it was it, recognized at the time. I guess it's but... a fantasy film, and even at the time, fantasy films were not a... There's well, still a, a grounded... Uh, I mean, I, guess I think if, King... if it wasn't for The Gone with the Wind, then it would have crushed. Oh, was it the same year? That's what I'm saying. It lost to oh, Gone man. with the Wind. Best picture. Okay, well, then, yeah. 
the big war film one. Well, war. It's about well, the big war. drama film, the film that was grounded in reality. Yeah, exactly. Too. And when you think about it, this is thirty nine, correct? So you know you're on the precipice of going into World War Two too. Yeah, as a um, like a real world context, you're right, and that actually plays into the context of this film as well, mm-hmm. because a lot of the uh, Munchkins I found out were actually. Uh, they came from Europe, and a lot of the reason they ended up on this film set was to simply get away from the Nazis at the time. Yeah, and I think this film only came out like a week or two before America went to war. Oh, or maybe like probably a not couple of months. Maybe um, it wasn't very long. Well, America that. entered the war in like forty, so yeah, it would have been close within a year at least, at the most. Yeah, it was pretty close. I'm at least reading the war the started though. Yeah, no, exactly. But um, America was they were a bit at late. that point. Yeah, yeah. They're like let's make more movies. <laughs> <laughs> well, they didn't want to get involved until Pearl Harbor. So, that's the truth. You remember Pearl Harbor? Um, let me. Okay, let's see. It was nominated for six Academy Awards, including Best Picture, but lost to Gone with the Wind. Also, director for Fleming. It did win two other categories: Best Original Song for Over the Rainbow and Best Original Score by Herbert Stout. Stout. Yeah. So they, yeah, it was the two musical categories, which is a little shocking to me because the music, as good as the music, is there's so many other things going on. How does this lose production design to anything else at the time. I don't get that. Yeah, that one I, I wouldn't get either. Or costume design. That would exactly, be the other. That's yeah. the big one I couldn't get my head around. I know the categories are like named differently, but they're essentially the same category. So yeah, I'm sure yeah, there of course. was something. Else. Oh, but um, right. So let's see what I got in here. I guess we can talk about like those three. I mean, we'll talk about Dorothy as well. So let's talk mm-hmm. about the four of them. Um, and the Wicked Witch are the, the ways. There's so many great characters in here. But all right, let's start with Judy Garland as uh, Dorothy, who is meant to be, I think, 13 in this film. She doesn't look 13 at all, but uh, that, I guess that was part of the torment. 16? She was 16 when they shot it. So I think there were... I mean, we know that the kind of stuff that she went through on that set, but it's interesting to know how young she's meant to be. I mean, I think the film still works if she was meant to be 16 or 17 or 18. Like her age, As long as she's like young enough... That I mean, it, it comes scary. back to sort of a... Uh, like how women in, were positioned in society at the time too, um, mm. especially around that age. Um, you know, she obviously comes across as just an innocent girl. And I think 13 or 16, you get the same sort of meaning between both of them. I mean, she's never sexualized or anything like that. So yeah, she's portrayed as an innocent girl. That can apply for both. And I think she's really good. Um mm. Solid performance. No, oh. no. <laughs> okay. Um, obviously, it's it's sort of hard in hindsight to, you know, sort of not bring into the, the, the production context mm. um, and how much, uh, well, stress and post-traumatic stress that were led from films like this. Yeah. And sort of the, uh, this is MGM, correct? Yes. Uh, yes. Yeah, so. Big line. You know, they wanted that line in the logo to actually play the cowardly line. I mean, that would, that would just make I mean, it comes back to it was a big problem, of, <laughs> and they kind of ironically acknowledge it in things like Singing in the Rain. Um, but it's like, you know, the, the big five studio model, it's just, you know, when it had RKO and R- MGM and, and all that, and sort of that monstrous lordship they had over their mm. cast, and were pretty much allowed to get away with anything because they owned the people working on it from young ages or. They exploited people from different countries yeah, because they yeah. were trying to get away from real-world problems. Well, I don't know. I wouldn't... I mean, yeah, there's definitely a lot of questionable motives with the, the munchkins. I wouldn't call it that. 
they're actually credited as the singer munch, uh, midgets, sorry, the singer midgets. Although that's not to do with the fact that they're singing. It's actually because their manager was a Leo singer. So there was actually a bit more of a formal thing going on in terms of them actually coming to America mm-hmm. to do this film. And you would notice, I noticed it immediately, a lot of them are dubbed when they're singing. You can tell that that's not their voice as their lips are moving. So a okay. lot of them just didn't even speak English. Um, but to your point, yeah, it's like the way that actors and, and people on screen will be transferred from country to country to do films, it's a little more of a <laughs> clean process now, I would say. Oh, yeah. I mean, it's ever since they sort of abolished the studio ownership of actors in, in the late 50s. It, right. It, that was that worked. when like SAG was born and stuff like that? It was just it was just where the model was going, mm. where people didn't want to be under a contract of just one lone studio. They wanted to um, expand. Well, they wanted to go into their own sort of films, and it wasn't it just the way the industry sort of progressed and moved away. But yeah, I mean, I think she's incredible, and I think, I mean, my favorite scene in the film is probably the scene you're going to guess it is, because you know it's anime. okay. I think the I think the somewhere over the rainbow thing is is pretty hard to top. Interesting, it's a great song for sure, but it's so it's interestingly subtle compared to everything else, where the instruments are just so loud and over the top for all I, the other I think music. But I think that's what I like about it because mm. it felt less musical, right? And I think that's sort of the why that song has become mythalized. It's it's a, a mythical song. Mm. It's in it, every facet um and it's beautifully relevant to the story where like she enters this colorful world she's literally over the rainbow i think she even says a line like that we're, we're, yeah. we're over the rainbow now or something like that and you're never gonna take away sort of the, the just the mesmerizing like charisma that she has with the camera it's mm-hmm. just like at the end of the day for better or worse those people knew she was money and I, yeah, and exactly. That, that's the thing, you know. They knew she was very talented, and although that affected a lot of facets of her life negatively, mm. still can't take away how powerful she is on the screen. And yeah, just how fun she is to be around. And yeah, exactly. I think I think the innocence that she brings to this. We talked, you know, young age and stuff. I think it's just we're we're in her shoes almost literally. Yeah, with the, with the the um, I almost called them shiny shoes, the red the red, red slippers. slippers. Jesus Christ, Jake. Um, <laughs> we're almost sort of in those slippers, and like we're viewing the world from her point of view. So she has to be likable. She has to be endearing in that way. Yeah, and I think it even comes to sh- the the shots of like, you know, even the foot shots having those like medium mm. close up shots of her putting on the shoes, taking off the shoes, clacking. You know, this is one of the things I forgot rewatching it was when she kind of climbs up the the barn gate. Mm-hmm. And she's sort of balancing before she... I was like, oh, yeah, I forgot about this little little beat of hers where it, I, I forgot that she was a bit... Well, not clumsy. I mean, she is clumsy, but sort of this free spirit. I kind of forgot that aspect of her, which was interesting. But um, going off what you were saying earlier, that she does want to leave home or she feels... I mean, that stuff... Well, she, she does that impulsive teenager thing where you're like, I want to leave my house. Yeah. I mean, they're going to kill a dog. That's that's a little much. Yeah. I guess she's, she's the evil witch of the West, so they... So they say. She's I've, been, I've always cast, found uh, Toto like such an interest. Like yes. why they picked that breed of dog, it always always interested me. You know, like the tiny dog. 
<laughs> but like, why that breed? Like, that's a like a. I think that's a Scottish something. Right. I'm not hundred percent sure what the breed is, but I always thought it was such a odd dog to pick for an American film. But that was just me. I would have picked something like a little beagle. Right. Something. Yeah. I mean, it's 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 definitely cute. Oh, it's yeah, of course it's cute. Yeah. <laughs> I'm not a. I'm not a, as you know, Jake. I am not a small dog person. But he's a cute dog. <laughs> cute dog just running around Apparently, i just hope i just hope he got treated well well do you want me to crush your dreams mm. a little bit so obviously the dog's running around a lot with these giant sets oh of no people. uh dog was fine i'm trying to remember the name of the dog because it wasn't toto she's credited as toto and also it's, it's a girl not a boy dog um oh god what's the dog's name i got it in here somewhere but apparently she had her legs broken at one point or at least one leg broken by a guard who stepped on her She's alive though. She's well. She was alive. <laughs> she was alive at one point. Just Terry, Terry the dog. I just to me, it's just like it. you hear stuff like that. It's like, but who was looking after it? How did that happen? No, this is this is the wild west of filmmaking, right? <laughs> oh, Makes but me um, sad. yeah. Well, that's so. This leads us, of course, into let's talk about the other three sort of characters who I. I was just so happy to come back to this film and be like, all right, they're very lovable, and you say, you're upset when you have to say goodbye to them at the yeah. end. So, um, Much like in Lord of the Rings. Yeah, yeah, exactly. You really nailed it this week with what you watched. Um, uh, I'm doing all right. <laughs> so let's start with the Scarecrow. Let's see. Played by... Is it... Get one sec. Gary Bolger. I think that's his name. Oh, right, sorry, Ray Bolger. What am I saying? Um, who plays the Scarecrow, she sort of has the strongest affiliation with him. Yeah. I mean, there was a side plot that they were, or at least the Kansas version of him, that were going to be sort of dating or had a crush on each like other. He's like sweet on her. Yeah, exactly. And I think they cut that for the film, but it's still in there. I, I thought it was funny when she just blatantly says, like, oh, I'm going to miss you most of all in front of everyone else. <laughs> I was like, that's a it's bit also mean. the first one he she, she meets. Yep, yeah, the first one she meets, yeah. So that makes sense. So, there we go. She had the most time with him. Yeah, exactly, and I think I love his physicality and something I've obviously he's definitely got that boy next door happy go lucky sort of vibe. Yeah, well, they kind of all do, even in the dialogue when like they're reading signs, Mm. they're pointing and speaking out loud as like as a children's show. Like I kind of like that, but then it's sort of juxtaposed or like when you first meet the scarecrow, he says something like, "Oh, there's there's a lot of people who do an awful lot of talking with no brains," and it's like, "Well, they got very political very quick." (laughs) So it's this weird little like those people in Europe right now. Oh, the poor munchkins. <laughs> but, um, yeah. <laughs> so, well, I again, uh, this applies to all of them, though, the physicality of what they're doing with their body, where it's like, mm-hmm. you probably don't get a lot about the Scarecrow from the dialogue, nearly as much as you get from the way he moves. And, like, he is a person made of straw, so it's like, there's, there's a bit of disability, uh, disability, there's a bit of a, a disbelievability, I should say, with how he can physically hold himself up. But it's good that he slinks around. He was always dropping himself and bits of, bits yeah. of himself. And when, when he's torn apart by crows, like he's just like this flat body. Like I, I love think, that stuff. I th- yeah, yeah, I like that too. Um, I think compared to the Tin Man, though, it's like it does show the shortcomings of him being a scarecrow. When you see how well the Tin Man acts, <laughs> and he's all built up. Well, like, I just he- like how he like even the the sort of mime ability. He, do- he literally does the robot sometimes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, well, that's the thing. He's sort of affected physically in a different way, where he's a bit more 
stiff and his movements are I mean he's what well, I'm guessing made of well tin. tin. I was gonna say metal, but yeah, he's made of tin. <laughs> Which is and a type of metal. There you go, close enough. And he has a little hat that I don't know why, but he just does it that one time where his hat just like bing bing and just yeah. springs up. I don't know why, but awesome. <laughs> um and I love that his axe does get some use. Like later in Fumi yeah. Jigasu use it to open the door when cool. You hope so. Yeah, exactly. Brings it along the whole time. <laughs> he's carrying it. He's been carrying it for a year when he's frozen up and uh, all, uh, yeah, rusted, I mm. suppose. But I guess this leads us to... Unless you were going to say something else about Tim Man. No, that was it. That was it. Okay. Well, this leads us oh, to... Oh, the, the, the... I mean, didn't they say the paint poisoned him? Didn't the paint poison him? Right. So what happened, and another fun fact with the Wizard of Oz set, so the original actor, I should say that uh, he was played by, let's see, Jack Haley. But the original actor for the Tin Man got horribly infected by the, yeah, by the paint and all the makeup stuff, and he was hospitalized. And instead of waiting for him to recover, they just hired someone else. And that's the Tin Man we see today. Ethical. <laughs> Amazing. Uh, pretty much every time you're going to be like, didn't this happen? I'll be like, here's this horrible story that happened. <laughs> you heard correct. Um, this leads us to the last one. So, who's this? Uh, Brett Lahr. Sorry, I'm moving away from my mic. I have to uh, check. Bert Lahr. Bert Lahr. Oh, sorry. I, I keep reading the first names wrong. This is crazy. It's okay, buddy. Um, thank you. So he plays the Cowardly Lion, of course, or Zeke in the uh, Kansas yeah. version. And um, he's great as well because, first off, I forgot how menacing he kind of is until he just gets bitch slapped in the face by Dorothy. <laughs> <laughs> and then he's holding his tail. He's wiping away his tears with his yeah. tail. And... Um, he might be my favorite, even though I think his songs might be my least favorite, especially the "I'm Gonna Be King" one. He's doing this weird thing with his voice and growling. I wasn't a big fan. Yeah, of that. I, I think the but... "Brain" song's my favorite song. Oh, yeah, if uh, I only with, had a brain. If if it wasn't the if it wasn't somewhere over the rainbow, but yes. Yeah, back to you. Back to your point about the no. Um, I think that was my point. It was just like how his facade falls apart so quick, and even I, I'm not a huge fan of a lot of his songs necessarily. But I f- just, yeah, I don't know. There's something about his personality I really love. And again, they just, they reinforce the same beats throughout where he's always scared and Scarecrow is sort of always sort of falling apart. Like the mm-hmm. fact that they just sort of repeat these same beats over and over, it really enforces uh, or reminds the audience rather like, oh, this is what this, this character is. And they're obviously a reflection of the characters we meet in Kansas. But I don't know. I just think it works really well and they just become such lovable characters and like like i said i got really sad when i had to say goodbye to them i was like oh yeah this is this hits man it's all right you can always go back anytime you want that's true i can just go and rewatch the film yeah not the just click James your own heels together one. i will <laughs> <laughs> my boots <laughs> your boots together um well i guess the only other person i really want to talk about i should give a shout out to let's see uh billy burke who plays glinda the witch of the north the good witch the good witch um but of course uh, margaret hamilton you, you said iconic with her laugh and of course yeah, the green oh, yeah. paint and she also had skin issues with the green paint and like they needed to use alcohol just to get it off and another fun story now this is one I actually this actually footage of this mm-hmm. is one of the scenes when she sort of burst away from the scene the idea was that there was an elevator under her in the set that she would go under the elevator before the flames shoot out and it was a little mistimed, so she got third-degree burns. I heard she was a pretty good sport about a lot of it, though. Yeah, I mean, she was pretty good. She obviously came back to work. She wouldn't do another scene like that, so they got her double to do it, and guess what? The double got burned as well. <laughs> so 
that's pretty messed up. But no, you're right. She was a pretty good sport about it and continued to work. Um, I guess most of the people. If you go to Oz, same. you will die. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, this does this lead me into my well. I'll, I'll first off say that I think she's perfect casting, even just like her face in the Kansas section when she's not wearing makeup. Like she just there's something about her facial structure, yeah, that just so aids sort of that witchy look. And she's a great actress, and she looks really fun and bubbly. But I'm glad they could kind of use her face to reinforce that constantly. Mm-hmm. I don't know. I just I'm not trying to be mean, but. I just thought the casting was perfect for her. Yeah. No, that's fair. Yeah. Um, all right. Uh, does this lead me into another, if you go to, uh, if you go to Oz, you will die story? I believe so. <laughs> so as I alluded earlier, one of the munchkins allegedly committed suicide. And there is a theory going around that this is actually, you can see it on screen. So the scene when they finally meet the Tin Man and they do the little musical number and then they go off to walk into the woods uh, depending on the version of this film you saw, and I think it's very hard to find the original version, you will notice this big bird walking in the background of the shot. Did you notice this at all? No, but isn't there a shadow or something that's like... It's kind of weird. Like You can't really tell what it is. It's more clearly a bird, if you watch, like, say, the Blu-ray or something. Mm-hmm. But uh, there's a lot of versions of the film out there on VHS and such where the shadow looks way more vague. It looks different. And some have theorized that this is a munchkin who has hung himself. And, I wonder if I can get the image up. Right. Yeah, get that. There's a lot of um. If you just Google image it or YouTube it, there's. You know what? I was watching a lot of these, and at first I was like, "This is dumb." But I my if it was a a Hun Munchkin, my theory is that it was on purpose, because why wouldn't the actors react to that? And I get how expensive it was to do shots back then. So just having a geese. Right? Yeah, have yeah. a look at this. It's very blurry, though. It's very it? blurry. That's, yeah, that's the trouble. I can't imagine it. There's no way it's intentional. Like, if you actually look at the the depth of field in that shot when they walk past the yellow brick road, like, they're so close, there's no way they wouldn't notice a hanging body and just scream. <laughs> that's sort of my take on it, unless it was intentionally placed there. I mean, that one's a little odd there. Yeah, that's that's it. That's the photo that, like, really clear. Looks messed up, eh? It's just a little too real looking. <laughs> it's just a little. Can you imagine up. if it actually was though, and they and they just stayed yeah. in it. Yeah, I mean we've heard enough stories about this film. It probably, it probably is. Wouldn't yeah. that be funny if you actually get them? Because like I'm seeing another one here and it looks way less clear. Yeah, exactly. It's, so it's you're right. It must place. be the maybe in the versions they might have even potentially shaded it to make it look more bird-like. Yeah, it definitely looks like they've gone in and digitally added a bird in there. Regardless of what it was, it looks like they definitely altered it at some point. Because, I, like, that other one looked very more, way more humanoid. Yeah, exactly. It looks more humanoid. You could make an argument that the legs was just lost, like, the information of the legs on the camera was lost. I don't know if I would buy that. It's interesting. I don't know. That, that's one for you to ponder and not see. So I wonder if they tonight. were treated well on, <laughs> on set. That this is a conversation we're having. Uh, for this delightful children's film. Uh, yeah, I just, I just, I, like, that's the thing though, Jake. It's like, I can watch the film and be like, oh, that's really enjoyable. But it's like, even, and I mean, like we were talking about with Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory, I heard there was just as many problems on that film too with the, the way they handled the Oompa Loompas on that one. Right. What's up with little people, man? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 
They they used her as uh, props more than characters, I yeah, guess. It's crazy. I mean, that was a similar thing as well. I'm, sh- I'm sure there were a bunch of Oompa Loompas who couldn't speak English or put in the background. Or I'm sure it was a similar scenario. Yeah, I mean, I think that's why their singing is uh, sort of broken away from the the main film. Yeah, yeah. So potential- similar similar thing going on there be, as well as here, I guess. I'd be intrigued to find out about how that one went. Yeah. Um, but well, which which was your favorite Munchkin? <laughs> Because there's a lot of different looking ones. Couldn't tell you that. I like the lollipop boys. Like you have the dancing girls that come in and yeah. do like a little little shindig, and then the guys come in. We is, represent. My the question lollipop is: do you, do you have any more sto- <laughs> stories or um, anything you want to add? Because I have a question I'd like to pose you. But all I just right. Wanna, if we're into talk, like. All right, I've got a couple left. Um, these are more just like facts and like messed up stories. Uh, okay. One that I got here is that the lion's costume weighed a hundred. Pounds. So with that, under the lights. Yeah, exactly. With those two things combined, you can imagine oh. how sweaty it was at the end of each day. I think they actually had like a whole system to 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 de de sweat it, I suppose, each day. My, I have two questions now to okay. pose you. Okay. <laughs> um, would you, if you were born in this time and had the option to be on this film? On screen, would you have been in this? Would you have gone and been in this film? I would say yes, just because I've been in some pretty shit films. <laughs> <laughs> I've already done it, and they didn't turn into the Wizard of Oz. So I would do it. And before but it depends we, who I am. Though. Before we move into like the highlight scene discussion, is this your favorite kids' film of all time? Probably not. I wouldn't go that far. I think it obviously has a special place in my heart because it is. Uh, you know, I, I would say it's probably my first, but. Um, with that being said, it's like I can watch this and appreciate it and love it, and I can even put aside all of the behind-the-scenes context, what happened to Judy Garland and mm. all the other stuff that happened to the other cast. Um, I can still appreciate like this. This is just a magical film. Like, I mean, we talked about the way it was shot um, a oh, little yeah. bit and just like, how sure. gorgeous some of that the scenery is. And I'm I'm shocked at how good 99% of the effects are. Like the stuff when when with the witches looking in like the bulb and you oh, see yeah, the yeah. footage there and even well, the house spinning looks well, incredible. The Oz sort of right the head yeah. sort of masking or um I guess key I guess they would have had some sort of chroma it had key to be to some play. sort of key yeah. yeah the only effect and this I'm I don't even know if this was intentional or not because I was like this looks drastically worse than all the other effects which still look great today is when when Dorothy's in the house as it's spinning up in the air and she's looking out and we're seeing these like keyed in images and we see um we see the witch being formed essentially like those and then we see a cow flying around and stuff mm. those look really bad to the point where I, it must have been done on purpose because everything else looks so good yeah maybe it's trying to like add to the hokiness maybe i don't know it's it, feel, it feels like they stole like random archival footage of like a cow and threw it in there yeah. it's like does that really work i mean they painted horses they had like seven different colored horses in this film <laughs> now they were painted in jello so Okay. Maybe they're all right. The horse has got off I'm all right. Sh- I'm sure they're totally fine. <laughs> Forgive me not having a lot of faith in <laughs> this film by this point. That's fair enough. All right. Do you have anything else you'd like to add? Let's see. Um, I've already talked a bit about like, just like the witch's posture. I want to say I like her verbiage of saying she wants to destroy the dog. Like she doesn't want to put the dog <laughs> down. She says destroy it. I'm like, geez. Well, that's the sinister. I think. Yeah, exactly. You wanted to be an evil cow. Yes. You, you really want that to sort of to stick in. Um, let's see. We talked a bit about like the vibrant color. I mean, the color in this film is like 
incredible. I mean, the last coloured film we did, because obviously we've been going through the decades, mm-hmm. the last coloured film we did was 2001 Space Odyssey, which is, that's an unfair comparison because that film also has like incredible colour use. But then you have 1950s, 20 years after this film was made, 12 Angry Men. And it's a little tricky because, again, these are black and white films intentionally shot in black and white. Mm-hmm. But even if you look into like the film grain and like some of the angles and stuff, like this film is just like next level. Like the fact that it's almost 100 years old it's crazy. It's over eighty years old now. Yeah, it's it's a little mind blowing. We'll, we'll get to a hundred in our lifetimes. So yeah, exactly. Unless I die of too, eating too many chips. Well, before I'm thirty, then you'll just join everyone else in Oz. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, they'll just be absolutely dead. You know what? I'm a little shocked because I got. I'm I'm sorry. I have so many notes here, but I'm actually going through. We actually talked a lot about these in detail well okay before we get into let's say our highlight scenes um let's talk a bit about the ending when oz is oh, oh let me double check who plays oz Be- frank morgan bequeathing his the- gifts gift giving right yeah his gift giving and i, and I want to say as well he actually plays the doorman as well both leading into oz and leading into the actual the wizard's i guess office or oh home. okay he actually plays both of them. and i didn't even pick that up even the other day was pretty was clever like, actually yeah i was like oh he's constantly deceiving he's monitoring everyone. doors yeah it's <laughs> making sure he's safe behind that curtain eh? but um fucking toto got him <laughs> but i will say about um frank morgan's uh, performance or even just like you're right let's go into the gift giving because the whole plot sort of revolves around these four characters wanting something that he can provide and they have yeah. to kill the witch to to essentially and we find out that that was sort of part of it is their acting killing the witch or taking her broom sort of gave the scarecrow this sort of leadership knowledge where he's the one sort of calling the shots yeah. when they're trying to rescue Dorothy. Um, and then you have the Tin Man who's sort of playing an active part as well. I mean, he wants a heart, but it's like him caring for Dorothy is that heart. Yeah. I, mean, I mean, we get we get the point. We get the, This is all like metaphorical. Um, but I like that... Excuse me. I like that the physical... And this is something I never really thought about until now mm-hmm. watching film was the physical things he gives... Is sort of playing to this weird semiotic, or not even semiotic, like, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? It's not semiotic. Is it semiotics? For? Like, just like the representation of the items that he's giving out. That's yeah, the I mean, word. There is semiotic, it? yeah. Yeah, that's the word. Semiotical, man. Yeah. Right, yeah. So I, it's it's interesting, the, pur- the purpose is itself. So, for example, when the character of the Scarecrow wants a brain and he's given a diploma, it's almost like everyone with a diploma or without a diploma has the same size brain. But this item, sem- uh, se- I keep symbolic. It's symbolic, yeah. This I keep wanting to say semiotic. I'm sure that's correct, but like I feel like that's wrong. Let's see. It's uh, a study of science, semiotics. Yeah, exactly. Okay, I'm, I'm using it right then. I'm I'm just going crazy. Yeah, it's all right. Crazy. I'm here to help you, buddy. <laughs> Thank you. I, I need the help. <laughs> um, but it's like that item is obviously representative of given to someone who's I mean obviously studied for it, but someone who has the knowledge to be a deep thinker and that's the word that uses deep thinker yeah. and then you have uh what's it oh it's a medal that um cowardly lines given a medal mm-hmm. which of course is something that's given to people who may or may not be more courageable than others but it's sort of that item that medal is the representation the semiotic of the bravery. acknowledgement of bravery yeah. exactly so i mean it gets into this deep level thinking i guess but i didn't realize how kind of clever that was initially He's like, here are the items that are typically given to people that represent the things that you want, even though 
I'm really only giving you these so that you also feel that acknowledgement, despite whether or not you actually have a brain or do have a heart or have courage. And I was, I was like, that's so interesting. Yeah. And then Dorothy gets an air balloon. <laughs> well, she wanted to fly away. Exactly. Over the rainbow. There you go. Exactly. But um, I thought that was just fascinating. And again, that was something I didn't really picked up on overall. But I will say... It's an interesting critical analysis there. Yeah, thank you. Thank you. But the, the overall thematic element of this film, it's one of the first things we're told in our classes, is don't yeah. end your films on a dream. And it was all a dream. And this film kind of does. This film does. The whole film kind of is a yeah, dream. I feel like it's more like Alice in Wonderland. Like, she eventually leaves Wonderland. Yeah, yeah. I think you could buy the fact, because she's pleading them, like, no, this is a real place. So you could use that as an argument. They're like, oh, well, she kind of went through this journey anyway metaphorically i'm still worried that like they still have to kill toto though like he jumps out of the basket it's like she's just gonna when she learns that toto is not in her basket she's just gonna turn the bike around and try and kill him anyway regardless whether he had a dream or not about loving home they're still trying to kill your dog i mean i guess i never <laughs> thought about it that way <laughs> i've been thinking about this for years and now that i finally rewatched it, i'm like yeah this just reinforces this this is incomplete <laughs> Well, at least he's got a broken leg so he can't run as fast, right? (laughs) (laughs) And on that note, time to move into highlight scenes. Damn. Well done. (laughs) You're welcome. What was your highlight scene, Zeke? The Somewhere Over the Rainbow uh, song or the witch's death scene? Nice. Because I like her, like, she's a real guttural scream. I'm melting. (laughs) My one weakness. It's whatever she says. <laughs> what is my one weakness? <laughs> really? Like the thing that populates 70% of people's bodies? That's your one weakness? <laughs> oh, shit. So, so if Dorothy to... had just spat at her, wouldn't that have done it? <laughs> She's a kind girl. She, would, she, I know. Would, she wouldn't have done that. Uh, so I'm trying to bring up the lyrics. So that's your, that's your... Oh, my God. I hate Google so much. So that's your highlight scene. Sure. Yeah. Cool. The um, What about you? So I'm going to do it because this film's so iconic and I love virtually all of the scenes. I will say I forgot that the tree scene exists and I love when um, Scarecrow jumps out of a window. <laughs> That's one that we replayed on VHS many times over, that him mm. jumping. So what I elected to do was I picked the scene where I noticed something I never noticed before that's like very subtle and very interesting. So after the scene where they're all snowed on and they mm. get sleepy, Another fun fact, that snow was, believe it or not, asbestos. What was asbestos snowing like on them? Asbestos. Yep. Yay! <laughs> what a great, great idea for film. <laughs> this is what I just wanted to check. You, you could get away with anything back then. Jesus. Yeah, I know. I heard stories of, um, you, there's like this thing you put in your mouth to create like air. So like if you're breathing out cold air. And I remember I heard a story where someone like bit on it and their whole mouth like exploded. They lost like all their teeth. This was early filmmaking. Not on this film, though. I don't remember which film that was on, but that was a story and a half. And that's Hollywood, people. <laughs> that's Hollywood. Come and join us. <laughs> so uh, after that scene comes up and they, they awaken, they're right outside Emerald City. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's a little track that starts playing. I've had this stuck in my head for ages. It's called Optimistic Voices. I've got the lyrics here. It says, when you're out of the woods, you're out of the dark, you're out of the night. Step into the sun, step into the light. Keep straight ahead for the most glorious place on the face of the earth or the sky. So, do you remember this track? It's a little like, la, 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 la. It's a little like, 
Um, I mean, it's called the track is, is called Optimistic Voices, but <laughs> I'll play I'll play two sets so we don't get copyright extract. I'll play a little bit of it for you because I was banging out Ding Dong the Witch is Dead on the drive whilst driving the other day. Much to the amusement of people at the lights mm-hmm. next to me. <laughs> Just have the windows way down. Um, yeah, I've been listening to the soundtrack. Here it is. So this is the track. I'll play a little bit. So when they lead into this scene... Okay, yeah, yeah. Yeah, and they start running over the Emerald City. What I noticed is, number one, when that song begins, they all look up. They're all like, huh? Like, they notice the song start playing diegetically, and they start, like, hopping and dancing to it as they, like, skip. I was like, oh, I never noticed that. And then when they get to the door, the lyrics actually stop based on the fact that they can't get in the door. Because the lyric, I mean, I got up here, I might as well. That's so crazy. When they get up to the end, it says, march up to that gate and bid it open. And then there's a little pause in the gate. Whatever. It's like, so it's, open? it's very much a musical sort of thing. Yeah. It's like, it's following the characters and it, it like pauses when the plot pauses. Yeah, like a musical well. formula. formula. Yeah. yeah. I was like, I've never noticed that. That's really cute. Yeah. So that what might be my highlight scene. Highlights. Just cause, yeah. Just cause I noticed that. But, uh, and, and of course the, uh, just the whole munchkin, like welcome to Oz sort of thing mm. is just incredible goosebumps when i was rewatching. i was like this is i mean it's the, it's the part of the film when you learn whether you think it's heartwarming or terrifying it really is that's the point of the film when you can figure it out but uh i just got goosebumps I was like this, this is so good it's so great no dramas well the wizard of oz is currently out in wide release it's not on netflix as i found um, out in i can any do a quick country. I can, in any country in netflix they don't, they don't like you they, i'll do a quick just watch search so again, this tells you where you can find it in Australia. Yes. Let's see if there's any streaming options. The Wizard of Oz, Zeke. Regardless, it is the Wizard of Oz. I mean, you're gonna find it. <laughs> yeah, it wouldn't. <laughs> it's not gonna be hard to find if you go to a local JB. So okay, it doesn't look like you can stream it anywhere. You can rent it or buy it on YouTube, Apple, Google Play, etc. And of course, yeah, you can buy it on um, DVD and Blu-ray. And I'm pretty sure there's a 4K release of this. Well, no worries. Well, Very cool. moving along, mm. what is new in streaming platforms and maybe even cinemas da, this da, week, da, 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 da. We're back, everyone. So if you live in WA... Are you doing both? I am doing both. Okay. We have streaming and cinemas today. So everyone, hold on to your hats. This is a big one. So coming to Netflix this week, you got Top End Wedding, Back to the Futures Part 1 and 2. So that's pretty cool. Uh, the second season of Jack Irish, uh, Warrior Nun, which is a new series. So I'm guessing season one of that. Uh, and ironically, a show called Magical Land of Oz. It's not what you think it is, though. Apparently, it is a, a mini series about Australian ecosystems. So, there you go. You can, you can Fair jump enough. on that one. On stand this week, we've got Goosebumps. I'm guessing this is the Jack Black feature film. Uh, Military Wives, which we talked about a few months ago. Yeah. Um, we uh, that that's coming to stand. Uh, Sully, which I'm pretty sure is on Netflix as well. Mm-hmm. So there you go. I didn't know this existed. Spy Kids four all the time in the world. Apparently, there's a Spy Kids four. Oh yeah, I don't think it's with the original kids. Ah, oh, that sucks. Oh well. I think it's with uh, the Rock actually. Oh really? Yeah. Oh. I I just want to see the poster. That's all I want to see. Just to see like the visual look of it. Uh, and also coming to Stan later this week is Brooklyn, the one with Sasha Ronan. So good. So, oh, haven't seen it. So, well, 
I hope you might give it a watch during the Ooh, week. Exciting. On Disney Plus this week, we got Hamilton, which I'm guessing is the, the live-action Hamilton that they're crafting. And one of our friends, Nina, is actually doing a backlot screening of this on Friday. Like she's going to it? I think she's booked out backlot so people can go and watch it with her. So, I the thing you is, I'm not... really like Hamilton. <laughs> See, I'm not like a big musical guy, even though I love... I, I'm, but... I'm going to watch it because... Jesus, so many people have hyped Hamilton up, and, <laughs> and it was like two hundred and fifty dollars tickets at the minimum. Oh, right, to go so. see the yeah performance. So I was never going to do that. Right. So this is obviously a feature film you can get on Disney Plus, directed by Thomas Kale. Now, everyone, the moment we've been waiting for. What's new in cinemas? <laughs> I even forgot what that's like. <laughs> Sorry, I'm excited. Um, so between Paradiso and Luna Leaderville, yes. and I'm, I'm guessing a couple of other Luna locations as well. That's why I'm going to be going. Uh, I don't think Hoyt's, I think Hoyt's is iffy at the moment, but you can see these films from the 2nd of July. This is this coming Thursday. Uh, films that we are a bit more familiar with. Some of them are already on DVD. So keep that with a grain of salt. Films like The Current War, Dark Waters, The Invisible Man, Hatches for Happiness, and The Personal History of David Copperfield. So those are all back in cinemas. Uh, if you want to get into those newer ones, and I'm saying this assuming that these are brand new because I don't recall these ever being okay in cinemas a couple of months back. Uh, so, Love Sarah, which sees a young woman fulfill her mother's dreams of opening a bakery in London. So, that's mm. out. Looks sweet, looks fun. Uh, the Booksellers, which is a documentary about the New York rare book world. I think it's like a, a library you're building, so it's a documentary about that. And last but not least, Bellbird, which sees a rural community rallying around a recently withered farmer to help with his grief. Yeah, booksellers sounded intriguing to me. I'm kind yeah, of yeah, I can't. Mind. I'm keen that it is a documentary. That yeah. we're getting. A I never get to see documentaries in cinema, so maybe I might yeah. give that a watch. I watched um, and this is on DVD. I saw it on JB uh, for Sama in cinemas, and that was fucking heart wrenching. <laughs> that was tough. I honestly, um, I probably might go this week because. We gotta, gotta do it. We've gotta do it. We gotta go at least one this week. Uh, but um with all that considered, we didn't want to pick I know we're out of the challenge now, we're out of the the decade countdown. Yeah. So we're back to actually just picking our films on a whim. Yeah. And uh, hopefully until we really start to get some concrete new movies in. Yeah, then. I I it was I said it earlier that I think it's best we give it at least just one more week, see how mm. this structure rolls out. Yep. Um, and then hopefully we can do a, a brand new release. Yeah, it would be really next. nice, even if it's an Australian release. Yeah. Especially if it's an Australian release. I hope Dirt Music's, like, real soon. Yeah. I'm a little shocked it's not out already, but we'll see. Yeah, cool. Um, so, we aren't watching any of those films. <laughs> However, Jake, what are we watching? Right, I'm excited for this one. Next week on the show, we're watching Portrait of a Lady on Fire. Je suis peintre. L'homme intéressé par ma fille est Milanais. Nous partons là-bas, si le portrait lui plaît. Il a épuisé déjà un peintre avant vous. Que s'est-il passé Je ne sais pas. France 1770, Mariana Painter is commissioned to do a wedding portrait of Heloise, a young woman who has just left the covent. Heloise is a reluctant bride-to-be, and Marianne must paint her without knowing. She observes her day by day to paint her secretly. Mm, secret paintings. This film's by Celine Siyama, mm. and is one of the few 2019 releases I have not managed to net either in 2020 or last year. 
Right. I definitely raked up a lot of them. Um, <laughs> this is one that just went under my radar and was your favorite film of this last year. This is my year. favorite film of 2019, just ahead of Parasite. And um, I'm so excited to do this. So this is a film, and I don't blame you for it going under the radar. I think I first, I, I saw it because I was observing like what's coming out in cinemas because we had to talk about it. Like for this podcast, I would be like, oh, this comes out next week, this comes out next week. And it was one that I rem- I do remember reading this. Mm-hmm. Like, I don't remember what episode that was. But it was on my radar, and especially when, I think it was Chris Stuckman, or Stuckman, who, I think he gave it his second best like you said, it was his second favorite film of 2019. And I was like, oh, wow, okay. And then it just so happened to be playing in cinemas that night. This was actually New Year's Eve last year. So December 31st, 2019. And how appropriate, because it is my favorite film of the year. And one of my favorite films of the decade. Snuck it in. Snuck it in just in time. And yeah, I watched it and I just walked down. I was like, that was a masterpiece. I think this is a perfect film. And I cannot fucking wait to rewatch it. And hopefully it's still a perfect film when I see it, so... Very tense and high stakes for next week on the show. <laughs> Until then, thank you for joining us for the Cinema Side Show podcast. I was Zeke. I was Jake. And we'll catch you next week with Portrait of a Lady on Fire. <laughs> <laughs>